Hello and welcome to JBI Dialogues. My name's Edwina Light and I'm the Digital Content Editor at the Journal of Bioethical Inquiry. JBI Dialogues is presented as a space to connect academic, professional and community voices in conversation about the journal's published research and up-and-coming issues and practices in bioethics. In this episode of JBI Dialogues, Professor Ross Upshaw, one of the co-editors of the journal's COVID-19 symposium, talks with Professor Eunice Kamara about her paper, Gambling with COVID-19 Makes More Sense, Ethical and Practical Challenges in COVID-19 Responses in Communalistic Resource-Limited Africa, co-authored with Dr David Ritu. Eunice is Professor of African Christian Ethics at Moy University in Kenya, with a doctorate in African Christian Ethics and a master's degree in International Health Research Ethics. Ross is a physician and bioethicist and heads the Division of Clinical Public Health at the University of Toronto in Canada. So welcome to, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Yunus Kamara, who's a professor in the Department of Philosophy, Religion and Theology at the Moy University in Kenya. And she specializes in ethics and has a particular interest on the interface between African ethics and Christian ethics. And she contributed a paper to our recent symposium. And I've invited her for a conversation to reflect on her paper and to uh, add any thoughts she has on the ethics as this COVID-19 pandemic evolves. Welcome, Eunice, and thank you very much for taking time from your busy life to speak with me today. Thank you. Thank you, Lars, for the opportunity. Yes, I did contribute a paper in the symposium on COVID in the Journal of Bioethical Inquiry. And in the paper, we co-authored with a colleague, David Delito. And in the paper, we were looking at the concept of inter- the concept and practice of international best practices in responding to COVID-19 and trying to understand how they apply in the context of resource poor communalistic communities like Kenya. And in the paper we argue that those practices are not international. Well, they apply in certain contexts, but in other contexts, we probably need a different set of best practices. So we are looking at each of various responses that were recommended by the World Health Organization and consequently by our local Ministry of Health. And we were looking at how practical they are and how ethical they are in the context of Kenya specifically in the context of poor contexts in Kenya, because in Kenya, we also have the global north and the global south. Mm -hmm. So we were specifically thinking of the global south in Kenya. So we argued that for poor families in Kenya, it's easier to gobble with COVID, and it makes more sense to gobble with COVID than to follow some of those international practices because they would actually translate to death. They would translate to lack of uh, basic needs. So it's way easier to, uh, to disregard the international best practices and hope that you won't get infected with COVID than to stay at home and you don't have the next meal. So that's basically the argument that we are putting across and we are saying we probably need to have learned from COVID, uh, not from COVID, but from Ebola in West Africa, which told us that we clearly need to engage local communities to tell us how to address 
emergency, emergencies such as pandemics, health pandemics. Great, thanks. So you wrote that paper several months ago and much has changed since then. Reflecting back on the arguments you made, how have they played out as the pandemic has evolved? And is there anything that you would change in the way you're thinking about the pandemic? Well, if if I was writing another paper today, I would probably not write the way I wrote, the way we wrote then, it would probably be more priority. It would be priority to write about how we should be responding to the epidemic, you know, rather than just talking about these are not working, these are not international practices. We probably should have done some quick, probably even community engagement practices to establish exactly how we should have responded and even how we should be responding. Uh, It's very interesting that we are all talking about COVID-19 in the past. We're saying, you know, COVID was, COVID has been, you know, if, if COVID was still there, you know. And it amused me that even at the MSF meeting that we had a while back, we were talking about COVID in the past tense as if it's gone. I don't know how that has come to us, but it's it's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly not gone in Canada because we just recorded our single day record high since all of this started. So it's by yes. no means in the past here. Very interesting, actually. So before the meeting with MSF, I actually thought it's Kenyans and Africans in general who are talking in the past tense because we in Africa have a tendency to hope and make hope practical. <laughs> so we have a way of thinking, this is what we would wish to be, and we begin living what we wish to be. So we are already living post-COVID because that's what we hope for. And I was thinking probably these are some of the things that that we probably could donate <laughs> to the global, global north. Because when you have little else to work with, then hopes become a big resource. It becomes a huge resource, which tells me about spirituality, African spirituality, and how we could have drawn a lot more from uh, African spirituality to combat COVID-19 without creating so many anxieties like we did, or we continue, we don't continue to do it. Probably that's why we are talking in the past tense. Because when COVID was at its height in Kenya, if your relative died of COVID, the government would take over, ensure that the body does not take longer than a day to be buried. And the public health officials from the Ministry of Health and and other government ministries would come and take over the burial. They would pick the body and come and bury it, sometimes in very depressing ways. Like I remember many of them would be buried either very early in the morning or very late in the night with very few family members present. And it was like throwing away the bodies. And that was very traumatizing for many Africans because we are not used to that. We are used to staying with the body and mourning around it and dancing with it, you know, and literally mourning and coming to terms with the fact that the person has died, even though they have not died. 
they are still present and we have to do certain rituals around their transition from this life to another life of the living dead. I don't know if you've heard of the concept of the living dead. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that was quite troublesome. And I keep thinking perhaps it would have been possible to have a different way of doing it if a few people took opportunity to engage communities and understand in situations of crisis like this, what do you do? In situations where you have a body here and the body is infectious, you do, at least that is what was understood at that point, uh, how do you deal with it? And probably communities would have given us a way forward, a better way than what was happening at the time. So I keep thinking that uh, as researchers, we probably could have done better rather than just commenting on situations in terms of providing some solutions. Well, it's remarkable, you know, when, when when you point this out, because, of course, one of the key lessons that we learned in Ebola was the need for community engagement, particularly around such profound uh, life events as death and managing the dying and the rituals of family members passing. And uh, part of the obstacle to managing Ebola was this resistance that was finally, when we started to engage communities and understand practices, we were able to find a way to make a common ground that would serve the goals of public health and at the same time uh, allow families to understand and partake in the rituals to the best possible way, even if you had to sort of move it a little bit to the future. I do want to pick up one point that you mentioned, which I think is really important. Bioethics doesn't talk a lot about hope. And, you know, in all of... uh, So I'd like you just to sort of expand a little bit on how you see hope playing a role in our future reflections in bioethics. Science generally doesn't, natural science generally doesn't talk about hope. And bioethics as a branch of science is quite, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't talk about hope, like you've rightly observed. And yet I am literally a student of spirituality and health And I've come to understand that there is a close relationship between our perspective, our, not perspective, but our um, spirituality, the way we see things, our worldviews, the way we see the world and the way we interpret it has a lot to do with our health. And there are actually some studies, not so many, especially in Africa, there are not so many that relate or link spiritual issues like hope with physical health. Like if you have hope, uh, you probably you have better immunity. I'm propounding some hypotheses. <laughs> but, but. I have picked from some literature, ideas from some literatures here and there, especially from America. I'm sure you've you've you're familiar with the works of Professor Harold Koenig. No, I'm not actually. So from Duke University, from the okay. University of Duke, yes, he does a lot of work on spirituality and health and religion also. You know, distinguishing religion from spirituality, but still talking about the implication of religious beliefs on health, 
they could be negative, but they could also be very positive. So when I think of hope, I'm like, probably hope is what is keeping uh, figures low for Africa. Because we can't test, we don't have the capacity to do mass testing, and that ignorance keeps us hopeful. Ah. When we hear that our numbers are small, then we feel, oh, we are fine. And probably because we feel we are okay and we are fine and we have hope for tomorrow, then we have better immunity and we are able to to resist COVID, perhaps. I don't know. (laughs) Perhaps, yeah. So before we conclude our our conversation, uh, any last reflections on the pandemic and where you see it going and uh, which major ethical issues we need to pay attention to? COVID has been strange. Let me say that. It's been very strange, particularly for Africa. Here in Kenya, we've been wondering, many of us have been wondering whether COVID is real interesting because we are like uh, we don't understand this science where we are expected to have gotten infected and thousands of us millions in fact fallen sick and then it didn't happen so we are like we are used to science predicting and getting it right how come it's not getting it right this time so we are like there is something <laughs> quite wrong. There is something not not normal about COVID. So COVID is also strange because we see, we hear certain things, but we see different things. So we hear uh, people we expect to know and know best uh, telling us that we need to have our masks on, but at the same time, we see them without masks. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating reflection. I mean, I have my own explanation for why we see differential impacts of COVID-19 around the world. And I'm not going to say I predicted it, but I did predict that Africa would not be as hard hit as uh, Northern Europe. And a lot of it has to do simply with demography, age dependency, and morbidity strand populations. And I'm I'm actually happy to know that uh, it has not been severe up to this point, but we still have a long way to go with it. Yeah. So I'm going to call us to, I'm going to thank you, Eunice, for your time and for this discussion. It's been greatly informative and insightful, and I'm hoping that many of our readers will take the time to listen to the wise words and insights that you've provided for us. So thank you for taking time today. I see our time is gone, but I would have liked to comment uh, on your paper with with Smith. Sure, why not? Go ahead. It, it fascinated me. I was fascinated by the paper and your idea of uh, moral failures because I resonate with that. I can see how we've had great lessons in the past, but they don't seem to have informed our action through COVID. And uh, I like it that you label it as moral failure because actually it is, it's a moral issue. It's a serious moral issue when we don't take lessons and they are available. If the lessons were not available, that would be a different thing. Mm. So I was um, stunned by the very specific statement you made in the paper that we do not learn our lessons. 
Well, we are, we argued that the only lesson we learned is that we don't like to learn lessons. <laughs> yes, and I'm like, this is so so true. Not just not just with the COVID nineteen, but with everything else. Everything in Kenya, you see us doing the very things we learned not to do. So I don't know. I don't know whether we will be able to find a drug to get us to. <laughs> Something. Take lessons. Yeah, <laughs> thank yeah. you. Thank you, Rose. But thank you for the paper. I really enjoyed reading it and I got I, to learn quite a bit. I Particularly because spirituality has a lot to do with morality. I mean, yes. moral responsibility and so on. It's got a lot to do with spirituality. I like I have to a student of spirituality and health. <laughs> thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Thank you once again. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much, Rose. It's been okay. a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for JBI Dialogues. A transcript of this audio resource is available on our website, bioethicalinquiry.com, where you'll also find links to the articles discussed today, as well as other JBI articles and issues. For JBI updates, subscribe on the website to our email newsletter or follow us on Twitter at Bioethic Inquiry. <laughs>